Let's pray. Dearly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your kindness that we can sing of the praises of our Savior. And I pray, Lord, that as we come before your word this morning, that we would think deeply about not just what it means to know our God, but that our God knows us, that that would be our, our hope and our confidence. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be here. Good to worship with you. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. We're continuing our study in, the, in the, this letter to the Galatians, but if you're like me, there are times when the Bible seems somewhat removed from our everyday lives. One time a while back, I heard my kids talking and they said, you know what's like one of the worst parts of being an Israelite? And they were serious about the question. You could tell they put some thought into this and something grieved them. You might be thinking enslavement in Egypt or wars in Canaan or exile in Babylon. But they said, you can't eat bacon. And there was like this genuine sadness in their voice. Like, could they really be God's chosen people? So you can tell they're my kids. Theology was generally right, but also thinking with their stomachs. But again, there are times when the Bible, Bible seems uh, somewhat removed from our everyday lives. And I think Galatians is a good example of this. In this letter, Paul is making a defense of the gospel. He's arguing for its power and sufficiency. And this was needed because there was these false teachers who, had, uh, who were arguing that you needed to not only trust in Jesus, but also be faithful to certain aspects of the Old Testament law. So circumcision, certain Jewish holidays, etc. So in a sense, you had to convert to Christianity, but also to Judaism as well. Now for me, this definitely sounds like a first century church problem, not a 21st century church problem. And obviously there's, there's plenty in scripture that seems pretty timeless, like Jesus loves you, don't lie, love your neighbor. But Old Testament law, like rules on, on special holidays and circumcision and, and other fairly archaic sounding ideas. It seems almost irrelevant because generally no one is arguing that we need to hold to the Old Testament law. And beyond that, Paul's solution to the problem is going to be the gospel, but if you're part of this church, then it's likely because you already believe the gospel. So we might be tempted to read this 2,000 year old letter and think, well, what does this really have to do with me? What does it have to do with those things in my life that really matter? In other words, what does Galatians have to do with my fears for the future or my struggle to love my ex-spouse or, or my trying to figure out what job to take or, or, or losing my temper with my kids or my hopelessness and depression? What does it have to do with serving and loving others, how I deal with loss, with what it means to love my spouse, with my thoughts on politics and culture? Again, is Galatians actually relevant to the Christian life? Well, what I hope to see this morning is that scripture in general, and Galatians in particular, speaks to all these issues for a couple of reasons. First, because scripture explains the human condition and why we do what we do. And second, because the gospel offers hope for the human condition and how Christ changes everything. And so let me read our text and then we'll jump into it. Galatians chapter four, we'll start with verse eight, only going through verse 11. But Paul writes, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to, once, want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. 
Now, again, this passage may not seem like it's going to both explain your life and bring hope to your life. In other words, if someone were to ask you, what is the Christian life about? Would you turn to this passage? I'm guessing few of you, if any, have memorized these verses. You likely don't have them in a frame on a wall in your house, but stay with me. And I trust we'll see uh, why this passage both explains the humanity's condition, but also humanity's hope. So here's our key idea. The moment-by-moment choice of the Christian life is to seek idols and be slaves to them, or to know God and be known by him. And so let's look at those two ideas, to seek idols and be slaves to them. Point number one, to seek idols and be slaves to them. I think sometimes it's hard to believe what people believe. I read an article recently about some of the most dangerous ad campaigns that came out. There was one from the 40s with doctors recommending smoking. There was one from the 60s that encouraged eating sugar as a means of dieting because it could curb your appetite. There was one on DDT, a pesticide that is now proven to lead to cancer, and the, the, the jingle was, DDT is good for me. My favorite, though, was one for 7-Up for Babies, in which the ad bragged about having the youngest customers in the business with a picture of an actual baby drinking from a 7-Up bottle. And they even encouraged mixing equal parts milk and 7-Up, which is apparently, quote, a wholesome combination. So first of all, it sounds disgusting. I don't know why you do that. So if one of you would try it, take a video of yourself drinking that and then send it to me, I would appreciate it. Beyond that, even though we weren't, um, you know, those parents who like, we never let our kids eat unhealthy stuff. We were pretty, whatever. I, I feel like that's, you know, crossing the line. I feel like maybe soda and milk is definitely past the line. But part of me thinks like, well, how could you ever believe such things? But then if we slow down and we're honest, all of us realize how easy it is to embrace a message that appeals to us, no matter how implausible. Does it make sense? I mean, we believe some product or relationship or success will change our lives because we want to believe it. And this is what was going on in the Galatian church. It was easy for people to embrace a false gospel because it appealed to their idolatrous hearts. Okay, let's see why this is true. Now, like I mentioned, false teachers had infiltrated the Galatian church and they were telling people that not only did they believe in Jesus, but they also had to follow the Old Testament law. And it wasn't just like a theological discussion, but remember it was having this impact on the church. There was this division between Jew and Gentile and based on Paul's warning in chapter five, there was the infiltration of sin, the danger of infighting and a lack of love for one another. And so this letter is about Paul warning against turning back to the slavery of the law that leads to those things and encourage them to trust in and enjoy the freedom of the gospel because that will lead to love. But that does bring us up the questions, why does, why does he even have to do this? Like why would anyone revert to the bondage of the Old Testament law instead of enjoying the freedom that comes from the gospel? And if if that seems like a less relevant question for you and me, realize what it's asking is the basic question of why do we do what we do? In other words, by asking why would someone turn back to the Old Testament law and asking, well, why does someone get frustrated with their spouse? They're really getting to the same idea. Why do people do what they do? Why do you get excited over a vacation, impatient with your kids, worried about money, anxious going to the dentist, looking forward to, to the weekend? On our passage, Paul dives deeper behind the motives of the Galatians and why they're being tempted to revert to Old Testament law and why that was then leading to division and dissension. He writes this in verse eight, 
Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Now, Paul was saying they used to worship idols, those things that by nature are not gods. Now, this would, would not have been surprising to the Galatians, right? After all, they came from a pagan background. This meant that, first of all, they came out of idolatry. They both worshipped idols, and they saw gods behind everything. And so they looked to their idols, the, these false gods, for good crops and good fortune, for fertility and favorable circumstances. And not only that, but their former lives were, uh, were, were worldly and, 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 and sinful. They knew because they didn't worship God, they were living some pretty depraved lives. They knew that their wrong worship had led to wrong living. Think of what Paul describes in chapter 5. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. This was the Galatians apart from the work of God in their lives. So again, the fact that they were idol worshipers before Christ would not have been surprising at all. But then Paul says something in verse 9 that would have been surprising, even shocking. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You see what Paul's saying? He's saying in turning back to the Old Testament law, it was rooted in the same evil as their former pagan ways. It was about their idolatry. Thomas Schreiner, maybe my favorite commentator in Galatians, he points out what is astonishing is that Paul equates subjection to, to the Torah, to the Old Testament, with paganism. But this really should demonstrate the, the pervasiveness and the hiddenness and the darkness of idolatry because it's even under the seemingly moral things that we do. Remember, these false teachers weren't saying, like, let's rebel against God or let's ignore God or let's not follow God. They were saying we need to obey God. We, we need to be a, a people of Scripture. We need to hold tightly to the Word of God and do exactly what it says. But really, their attempts at morality, these attempts at earning God's favor, were just about their worship and idolatry. Now, we'll see why this is true for a moment in a moment, but the first thing this does is remind us that behind everything we do is our worship, and that our greatest danger is false worship. We could say worshiping idols. Now, this may be, sound be completely familiar to you. This may be completely foreign to you. But I think it's profitable to dive in deeper to really understand how idolatry explains us and how idolatry enslaves us. So first, A in your notes, idolatry explains us. Now, again, if you've been part of Lighthouse for a while, you, you know a lot of this. But it's something we need to con continue to consider, especially since it's kind of at the heart of our passage. But realize that when it comes to understanding why people do what they do, that central to all of it is this idea of worship. Again, verse 8, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God. So Paul is talking about their worship, the gods that we live for. But importantly, Paul really presents two choices. He says it's either God or it's idols. We, he calls them not gods. So he doesn't say like, well, some people worship God, and then some people worship idols, and then some people are atheists. They don't worship anything, right? It's, it's God or idols. And, and he's saying we're, we're all worshipers. And this falls in line with the rest of Paul's teaching on this. Think of Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 21. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
He's saying they should know God. They were wired to know God, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So what happened? It says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So do you hear that? Because we are fallen creatures with foolish and darkened hearts, we will exchange the worship of the creator for the worship of the creation. And understand, this describes all of us. We are all worshipers, and we are always worshiping. So what is worship? Because you might picture like singing songs in a church or bowing down to stone statues or lighting incense at a shrine, but more simply, worship is the idea that we love and adore and trust and value certain things. Worship is about awe and affection. It's marked by love and adoration and trust and and that which we value. Now, we were created to love and worship God above everything. That's why worship is such a, a big theme in the Bible, right? It's at the heart of the very first commandment, Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. He's saying this is where it starts. Worship God. It's at the heart of the greatest commandment, Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord of God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Okay, saying this is it. This is the, this is the Christian life. It's to, to worship God, to love God. The problem is, is that we were, as much as we were supposed to love and worship God above all things, we turn to God's substitutes. As Timothy Keller calls them, counterfeit gods. The Bible calls them idolatry. In our passage, Paul calls them no gods. And so understand, all sin at some level is idolatry. It's worshiping something other than God. It's desiring something more than God. And understand, we can make an idol of just about anything. People worship money and family and respect and pleasure and success and education. And so hopefully you you recognize this, Christian or not, there are things that drive you, that you live for, that things that you hope in. Realize this is just rooted in your worship. So why do people worship? I mean, why would we ever worship a stone statue or occupational success or a relationship? People worship idols because they seek some version of blessing, some version of salvation. One time I had our interns do a project where they they looked at idolatry in the Old Testament to try to determine what people really wanted from their idols. Okay, they weren't just worshiping idols, but why were they worshiping them? 70 plus passages, and, and you see people worship and live for these idols because they promise prosperity or knowledge or power or security, among other things. And by the way, we, we pay our interns. I feel like I need to say that. Like, it wasn't just unpaid labor. Like, hey, by the way, just go through the Old Testament and let's see what happens. Um, like I, and then I had them wash my car and get my dry cleaner or something. We, we pay them. They don't ever wash my car. Um, but in biblical times, it was about these false gods that were promising, again, health and happiness, fertility and fortune. And for us, we too seek some aspect of salvation. Right? It's usually a version of what will make life right. right? Like what, will, what will bring hope and happiness? What will offer what we long for? So security or love or prosperity or power control, the affection and admiration of others. It could be a myriad of things. It's some aspect of hope. The belief in something or some things that will make life right. So for exa- example, at a religious level, people seek salvation in religion. Believing Buddhism or Hinduism or Catholicism will save them and grant them some version of eternal life. For others, their salvation is about relationships and people. 
right? People are the saviors who offer approval or affection or admiration or acceptance. It's when we want people to, to like us, we, we feel like we need them to think well of us. Further salvation is found in money. Money is a savior that offers a version of salvation. It's security or identity or pleasure. Often people's salvation is simply better circumstances. Like, have you ever thought about that? Like, if I could just get into that certain school, or if my kids or grandkids are successful, or if I, can, if I can get married, or if my health would improve, or if I got that promotion, or if my problem went away, then I would be okay. Then I'd be happy, then I'd be content. Right? That's your salvation. And it's not just a religious idea. Significantly, what we worship will determine how we live. I mean, if I, if I live for money, I'm going to live a certain way. If I live for my kids' successes, I'm going to live a certain way. If I live for the approval of others, I'm going to live a certain way. More broadly, if I worship Christ, I'll live the right way. I will love right, respond right, emote right, care right, all of it. If I worship idols, then I'll live wrong. I will stress, I'll be angry, I'll be nice, but only to get what I want. I'll lose hope. So hopefully this starts to make sense of what Paul is saying in our passage. Before Christ, the Galatians were pagans and they worship idols to, to get some version of salvation, maybe better crops, maybe good fortune, maybe some version of prosperity. But now he says falling back into Judaism is the same thing. They're just seeking a version of salvation. It was about how morality would earn God's approval. It was about how if they were able to keep the Old Testament law good enough, then God would be favorable to them. But again, it's just another form of idolatry, worshiping and trusting in something other than God. And then what they worshiped determined how they lived. It was about demanding circumcision. It was ethnic division. It was biting and devouring one another. But stepping back, hopefully you see why this really gives a fuller picture of life. All right, so while the world may say who we are is determined by our biology, uh, our environment, how we were raised, socioeconomic factors, our power structures, as Christians, while we acknowledge those things may be a factor, we also understand that none of those ideas are as fundamental and base as worship. Why do people do what they do? Because they're worshipers. As we say in our counseling class, all of us are worshipers, Every moment is a worship moment, and what we worship will determine how we live. People worship relationships, they'll live a certain way, money a certain way, success a certain way. Let me give you just a few examples. Why are some of our young people stressed about getting into college right now? Right, Because they, they worship something. Maybe it's success or some version of the future, and they believe if they get it, then life will be good, but they're worried that they won't. Why do parents get angry with their kids? It's worship. Maybe they simply worship comfort and their kid's behavior is threatening that comfort and so they get angry. Why do we maybe prefer to stay with our own friends group on a Sunday morning rather than reach out and welcoming people? Maybe again, it's we worship comfort or maybe it's approval, right? And so we stay with those who already seem to approve of us. So for example, college students, if, if I told you today, just meet someone who is not college age. Okay, what goes through your mind? What worries do you have? Realize that your hesitations are rooted in worship. So it's starting to become clear. Your, your spouse says something unkind. Your boss gives you a, a too soon deadline. Your coach yells at you. You get a devastating medical diagnosis. You, you visit your in-laws. Those are all just worship moments. 
and what you worship will determine how you live. Now, you're already, hopefully you're already starting to see this, but understand, all, idolatry doesn't just explain us, but it enslaves us. And so that's B there in your notes. Idolatry enslaves us. Look again at verse eight. He says, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that by nature are not God's. Then in verse nine, he asked, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be? So why does idolatry enslave us? Why does it matter if I, I worship my kid's success or getting ahead at work or some version of comfort? It's because idolatry means I'm living for something. I'm trusting in something. I love something. I feel like I need something. But if that's the case, then my life is about serving my idols and protecting my idols and looking uh, out for my idols and, and even avenging my idols. So to be obligated to anything means it owns us in some way. Let's consider the example of anxiety and worry. We've talked about this a lot here at Lighthouse, but I think it's worthwhile. Why do we get anxious? Why do we get stressed? Why do we get worried? It's because our idols are threatened. Okay, so for those of you who struggle with worry or anxiety even right now, remember that idea. Stress comes when our idols are threatened. The example I use in our counseling class is this. Imagine I had this glass statue and it was your literal idol and you really believe that it would protect your family. It would make you financially prosperous and give you good circumstances and grant you health. Now imagine I had a hammer over it and I was going to smash your idol. I was going to destroy what you feel you need, what, what you value and worship. How do you feel? Again, picture you really believe you need this for life. Likely you would feel anxiety. You'd be stressed, you'd be worried, you'd be angry even. You'd be fearful. Your idol is being threatened and so you're stressed. So again, sinful anxiety is about our idols being threatened. We don't have time to get into it. But that's why Jesus in Matthew 6, 24, right before he says, hey, do not be anxious, what does he say? No one can serve two masters. He was tying together our idolatry and our anxiety and pointing out that those who he's speaking to were anxious because their idol of money was threatened by their poverty. Now, overall, that's a pretty easy concept. My teenagers even get this. They, they've heard it so much that a little while back, I heard one of my sons mention being a bit stressed, and I hear his sister scream from the other room, your idols are being threatened, right? <laughs> if you're one of our Lighthouse counselors, that's good theology, but don't, don't scream at people. <laughs> but do you see how enslaving this is? If I worship something, I'm living for it. I'm, I need to protect it. I need to serve it. And when my idol is threatened, being harmed or even destroyed, then I have no choice but to be worried or angry or hopeless. So again, do you see how enslaving idolatry is? And most of you I know have felt it. You've been angry or you've been stressed or you've been fearful and you want to not be those things and yet you feel like you have no choice. Or similarly, think of people pleasing, which is the idol of, of wanting people's approval. Right? We, we need people to think well of us, to like us, to admire us, to encourage us, to be affectionate with us. But again, do you see how enslaving that is? <clears throat> Living for the admiration or approval of others. And before you think that this means that you're just trying to, that the people please are just people who try to do what other people want, people pleasing comes out in so many forms. From the person who struggles with insecurities to the person who is bold and brash, in both cases, people are often just a means to get something. But again, it's enslaving to live for others. 
And some of you know what this is like, right? You struggle in social settings. You can't stand to have your spouse mad at you. You're afraid of sharing your faith. You struggle with your body image. You feel like you have to dress it a certain way. You're afraid of public speaking. <clears throat> it's a pretty hard way to live. That's why idolatry is enslaves. And hopefully this makes sense of just how pervasive and dangerous idolatry is. In fact, verse 10, it's kind of a small verse, but it says something about idolatry. Paul writes, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Remember the Galatians were tempted to revert back to living according to the Old Testament law. So apparently one of those was just following the Jewish calendar, like doing the Jewish holidays. And you might think, well, is that really that big of a deal? But Paul says it's serious enough that it makes him think that all his labor is in vain. That's what he says in verse 11. Like, I've just wasted. If this is really what you're going to do, then I've wasted my ministry. But why is he taking it so seriously? But it's because even things like that, just going back to the Jewish calendar, it was rooted in idolatry. So hopefully you're starting to see the picture. Idolatry is all around us. Idolatry is in us. It's why we do what we do. Now, one more thing before we move on. If you are not a believer, I hope you see how Christianity isn't just about like right and wrong or about truths and lies. It speaks to your worship. And so it explains your life. Because whether or not you believe in God, you're still a worshiper and your worship determines how you live. And your only hope to overcome the enslavement of the idols of this world is the gospel. And so really, the, the, the brokenness of this world and, and your struggle with sin and your struggle with suffering, it should just tell you this, that you need a savior. And I'm not just speaking to those who are really honest about their lack of faith. For those of you who might have some general belief in God and you feel like you're doing pretty good because you're showing up to church and you're trying to be fairly moral, realize that's actually the kind of thing this passage is addressing. It was people who believed they were okay because of some general belief in God and a willingness to try to be a good person. But understand, that really describes just about every religion in the world. Be a good person, earn the favor of God. But realize no amount of morality or religiosity will overcome our sin and the judgment we deserve. Our only hope is in the gospel that we would know God and more importantly, that he would know us. And that leads to our second idea to know God and be known by him. So we have the pervasiveness of idolatry. It really uh, devastates. And apart from Christ, it will always enslave. So what are we to do? I mean, if worship and idolatry are essentially hardwired into humanity, then what is our hope? We find our hope in the God of this world. Right, the only solution to the worship of idols that, that will use us and enslave us is to worship the one who loves us and cares for us. And this is why what Paul says in verse 9 about what it means to be a Christian is truly a, a beautiful understanding of the Christian faith. He says, but now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God. So Paul kind of offers a simple and yet profound summary of the Christian life. It's to, to know God and be known by God. Now, this may not sound that amazing. After all, most of us know a lot of people, and a lot of people know us. But I understand this picture of knowing, as we'll discuss, is about an intimate relationship. It's about experiencing God's love and affection, his power and his strength. Now, the first thing this idea of knowing God and God knowing us does is it draws our mind to the gospel. Because only the gospel allows us to be in a relationship with God in the first place. 
I mean, remember our, our sin, big and small, is really about our rebellion against God. Because every time we disobey God, we're saying, God, I won't do what you say. And this rebellion deserves punishment. In fact, we are sinners, and, and because we are sinners and God is righteous, we deserve hell itself. So life should not be about God knowing us, but God disowning us. It should not be about God loving us, but hating us, not serving us, but punishing us. But the message of the gospel, the message of the cross changes everything. The gospel says that, that to know us and to be in a relationship with us, that God sent Jesus into this world, not just to be a teacher or a prophet or a miracle worker, but to be our savior. And he did this by living the perfect life we were unable to and then going to the cross to suffer the punishment we deserve in our place. So if we trust in Christ alone, we're forgiven and in a renewed relationship with God. In other words, only in the gospel, only through the work of Christ on the cross can we know God and be known by God. And again, that idea of knowing God and being known by God is really at the essence of the Christian life. Because if you think about it in our passage, rather than kind of elaborate on the Christian life with deep and complicated theological ideas, Paul sums it up like this. He says it's to know God, it's to be known by God. And again, it may sound simplistic, but let's look a little closer and see how these two ideas describe the Christian life by offering the Christian confidence and the Christian calling. The Christian confidence and the Christian calling. So two ideas, the Christian confidence to be known by God. Maybe needless to say, it doesn't matter if you know about someone, right? For there to be a relationship, they also need to know you. This week, our family went to watch a woman's college basketball game, and there was a celebrity there. Um, you know, you could see him on the sideline. I'm always hesitant to use like examples from modern culture, so we'll just, I won't give his name, but we'll just say he was an exceptionally tall elf. Okay, so, um, so, so we know who he is. Okay, so we, you know, we've seen uh, a couple of his movies, but he, he doesn't know us. It's not like he invited us you know, to sit with him courtside or go out for a meal afterwards. Right, there's a huge difference between knowing about someone and really knowing someone from a relationship standpoint. That's what Paul is getting at. So Paul initially says that the Christian life is to know God, but then he kind of quickly corrects himself and he says, um, um, then he quickly corrects himself and it's about God knowing us. And the point wasn't that he was saying that he's wrong, but he's, he's trying to make the point that there's something that takes precedence over us knowing God, and it's that God knows us. That is actually infinitely more foundational. Now, like I mentioned earlier, this idea of know here isn't about simple knowledge of someone, but a personal relationship. As one commentator writes, God's knowledge of his people harkens back to the Hebrew word, the verb know, which is yada, where God's knowledge refers to his choosing of someone the setting of his affection upon someone. So think about that. God sets his affection upon you. This is more than God forgiving us. It's about God making us his own. And, and, likely, and the phrase likely is, is a continuing of the picture of adoption that Paul gave us just a couple of verses earlier. We discussed that last week, but the idea was that we were enemies of God. We were slaves to sin. We were spiritual orphans with no home and no future. But in the gospel, God adopts us and makes us his own. And this means that we are fully and completely God's children. And we have to really consider the significance of this. The famous theologian J.I. Packer, he writes, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Why? 
because of the riches of the relationship with God that it begins. He then writes this. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge, justification, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father, adoption is greater. This is what it means for God to know us. That he set his affection on us. That he allows us to call out to him. So to be known by God, this is the Christian confidence. This reality that God knows us is what we hold on to, we cling to. It's what gives us hope in this dark world, right? Our God is present and he is active and he is loving. And so beloved, this truth that God is our heavenly father and that he knows us and sets his affection on us should be the reality that we live in. So just kind of slow down and consider what it means. First of all, amazingly, that God knows us, I mean, knows all of us, and is still willing to, to love us and care for us is a, is a shocking thing. I mean, God knows everything about you. My guess is there are a few people who know some of the dark parts of your life, but no one knows everything. No one knows the worst of it. Those parts that you are so ashamed of, those parts that you, you can't almost believe yourself, that they're part of your life, those parts that, that you feel like if someone knew that about you, they would never want to be with you. And God knows all of it, and he loves you. And it doesn't mean the dark parts don't matter. In fact, he will constantly work to bring light into the darkness, but he will never, ever forsake you. It also means that not only will he give you grace in your suffering, but he'll allow suffering to be a grace. In other words, as our father, we can trust that if God allows it, it must be for our good. In the same way that our earthly fathers, when they're at their best, allow even pain and difficulty when it's for our good, it could be eating vegetables, it could be doing homework, getting shots, he will always do what's best for us. In the same way, our heavenly father, who is perfect in love, will do the same, but to an infinitely greater level. Nothing is ever wasted in God's economy. God is constantly working our lives. And we could go on and on. I mean, he brings truth in a world of confusion. He offers love in a world of rejection. He brings peace to our hearts in a world that is constantly at war with itself. The fact that God knows us is everything. Now we'll discuss the importance of what it means to try to know God better in a moment. And it's hugely important, but often we make that the crux of the Christian life. The Christian life is about what we do. It's about how much knowledge we have. It's about how moral we are. But our confidence isn't in ourselves. It isn't what we do, what we pursue, what we know. Our confidence is that God knows us. Because if you think about it, in this life, we will always struggle with sin. Suffering will be our everyday reality. We will lack faith. We will be unfaithful. So our hope is the one who overcomes sin who is never a victim of suffering and even ordains it, who will always and continually be thankful. Our hope is in a God who knows us. I mean, what's the hardest thing that you're going through right now? I'm guessing you, you, if, if you are going through something, you wish you, you knew more, you knew better, you knew what to do, you knew how to fix things. But here's your confidence. God knows you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And so in your suffering, you need to hold on to the one who is holding on to you. When my kids were little and we would walk and they would hold my hand, often, you know, they're 
their hands were tiny and my hands were big. And, and so what they would do is they would just hold on to one of my fingers and then I would wrap my rest of my hand around them. And every once in a while they would, they would trip or they would stumble and they would, they would almost fall and I could feel their hand tighten because they feel like if they don't hold on tight enough, they're gonna fall. But what's really happening? I'm holding on to them. There were times where they would literally fall and I would just pick them up, right? Because I'm holding on to them. And this is God with us. It's not that we're clinging so tightly to God, it's that God will never, ever let go of us. That's the Christian confidence. B is the Christian calling. It's to know God. The Christian calling is to know God. When we think again about growing our relationship with God, we have to think through the idea, it's not just knowledge, right? I just need to know more about God. It's about a relationship. Sometimes I try to introduce my kids to older music because it seems like they, they should know these things. A while back we were driving, we were playing some 80s music and so one of my kids asked, wait, is this, is this the flight of the pigeons? And I'm like, first of all, it's flock of seagulls, okay? <laughs> Second of all, no, it's the orchestral maneuvers in the dark. But, but knowledge about something is different, right? Like you can know about someone, but not have a relationship with them. That's what we described below. And the picture in our passage is a relationship. We're not just trying to gain knowledge about something. That's why Paul, what Paul is getting at in verse nine when he says, but now that you've come to know God, Right, this, is, this is it. This is what it means to pursue a relationship with God. So while the, the Christian's confidence is that God knows us, our calling then is try to know God, but maybe more specifically, to know the God who knows us. But it's so interesting because Paul doesn't describe the Christian life as serving or doing things for God, though that is good, but it's knowing the God who knows you. And this is the truth we are told we need to hold on to, the reality that we need to embrace. Again, I quote J.I. Packer, he says this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Now, do you see what he's saying? He said, you wanna know how much people really get it? Like, do they really get their faith? Then just try to figure out, do they understand that God is their, their father? He continues, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. And so we need to make this our aim to, to consider and dive into the reality of God as our Father. And to our earlier point, this is so significant because this reality of God as our Father will encourage us to, to look to Him and to trust Him and to worship Him and not give ourselves to the idols of the world. Remember how we talked about earlier how like in our sin, we're tempted to worship idols, to give ourselves to them, to live for them. But the solution isn't to just stop worshiping idols. That's impossible in the sense that we will always be worshiping. We can't just stop worshiping. Again, we said this earlier, but we have two choices, the creator or the creation. So the answer then is to worship something greater than the idols we are tempted to worship. As one of my counseling professors would say, he says, we need to push out inferior worship with superior worship. He continues, this is one of our strongest weapons against strong desires. Superior loves, hopes, and trusts defeat inferior loves, hopes, and trusts. 
In other words, you want to stop worshiping idols, then you need something better to worship. And that beloved is the God who knows us. And that's why Paul says this about our sin and idolatry in verse nine. He describes it as weak and worthless. But his point being that it's, it's foolish to turn to them because God is the opposite. He is powerful and worth everything. And Paul wants us to see that God is better than anything that the world offers. In other words, uh, Jesus isn't just right, but he is infinitely better. Now, if you've been a lighthouse, you've heard me say that a lot, but the reason isn't just because it is truth, but because it is life-changing truth. If you really believe it, then idols lose their power and you no longer live enslaved to them. Brother, you get to live out of the freedom you find in the gospel. Let me just give you a couple examples of this. Why do people stress about money? Like we said earlier, it's because they make an idol of money and that idol is sometimes threatened. It's threatened by tight finances. It's threatened by a big expense coming up. It's threatened when you lose your job. The answer isn't simply to stop worshiping money, because again, we'll always be worshiping. It's to love, trust, and worship something greater. And this, of course, is God. But what should encourage us to worship and trust God above the idol of money is to really consider, appreciate, and have faith in the God who knows us. So while money promises security, God gave us his son so that we would be secure for all of time. While money, money promises identity, God says our identity is as heirs to the king of the world. While money promises pleasure, God seeks our greatest, deepest, and most enduring joys in him. And so when we live in the reality that God knows us, and so trust in God and worship God, idols lose their power and money no longer enslaves us. And again, in this, we get to enjoy the freedom of the gospel. What about this example, loving others? Again, this is a prominent theme in the letter to the Galatians. Remember, our struggle to love is always rooted in our idolatry. More particular, I'm often going to treat others based on whether they serve and love my idols. So for example, the, the example I've used before is that the challenge of parenting isn't first that our kids are disobedient, it's that our kids don't worship the same idols that we do. That leads to a conflict in the home. But in relationships in general, our idols stop us from loving well, right? Our idol of fairness, we'll, we will struggle to forgive someone who's hurt us. When our idol is comfort, we will struggle to reach out and make new friends on a Sunday morning. When our idol is someone's approval, we will struggle to share our faith because uh, of fear of what people might, how they might respond. When our idol is being treated well, then we'll struggle to love our coworkers or our in-laws or our teammates who don't treat us well. So do you see the problem? At the root of all lack of love is idolatry. That's why the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor, is preceded by the greatest commandment, which is to love God. The second flows from the first. In other words, my ability to love my neighbor is first about my ability to love God. And this leads to the solution. We need to, to love God. We need to worship God. We need to trust in God. And we can do this because we believe and live in the reality that God knows us. I don't need the idol of fairness because I trust God is always fair and he'll make everything right. And that frees me to love and to forgive. I don't need the idol of comfort because I trust that the true rest and peace are found in God and so I can love. I don't need the idol of people's approval because the one person whose approval truly matters, I have in Christ and so I can love. 
And I don't need the idol being treated well because in the gospel, Christ treats me far better than I will ever deserve. And so I can love. But hopefully you see the point. As I know the God who knows me, I don't need to worship my idols. And instead I can worship and trust in the one who loves me. So how do we grow in knowing God? There's a lot we could focus on, but maybe very simply three ideas is just consider communication, atmosphere, and meditation. By communication, I, I mean we need to make sure that we are speaking to God through prayer and, he, and letting him speak to us through his word. Are you in prayer? Are you spending time in the word? By atmosphere, I mean we need to consider how we can make sure the atmosphere we live in is encouraging us to move towards Christ. So for example, listening to the audio Bible or good sermons or worship music or edifying podcast when you're, when you're walking to class or when you're commuting or when you're working out or walking the dog, is your atmosphere saturated by gospel truth? And by meditation, I mean that instead of setting my mind on things on earth, I will set my mind on things above, Colossians 3.2. So when I'm tempted to meditate on how my spouse has wronged me or dwell on my struggles, find, uh, struggling finances or think about a stressful situation at work, or become worried about college acceptance letters. Instead, I think deeply about the God who knows me. And in that meditation, my heart rests. Here's the point of it all. We need to make it our goal to know the God who knows us. And then we need to live in that reality. And when we do, nothing will ever be the same. Let me close with this. I've quoted J.I. Packer on multiple occasions. In fact, in this, his chapter on adoption and being sons of God in his book, Knowing God, it is so worth reading. I wanna encourage you to do that. But while he passed away a few years ago, he's really considered one of the great Christian minds who wrote at a, at a fairly accessible level and really influenced and encouraged so many believers in the 20th and into the 21st century. By Christian standards, he's famous. So if you've been Christian long enough, you've likely heard of him. But do you ever wonder what kind of person he was? Because I, like, I had a lot of professors, especially an undergraduate, who were brilliant, but were cold or even unkind. I, I've known Christians who could argue doctrine with the best of them, but they were simply known for their arguments. Most of us see people in our culture trying to make the most of their fame. But remember what Packer said. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, just find out how much he makes of the thought of God, of being God's child and having God as his father. So what does that really look like when you really believe God is your father? You would hope that you would never need to brag about your brilliance. You wouldn't need to argue theology. You would never flout your fame. Rather, you hope someone like that would be loving and kind. My mom used to work for a Christian ministry and, and she was at a conference during, and during lunch she ended up at just some table with an older gentleman and she said he was very nice and he was very kind and it was a, an enjoyable conversation. And when she was done, a friend asked her, do you know who that was? And she said, well, yes, it was James, because that's how he introduced himself. And she said, that's J.I. Packer, right? And the story has helped me frame how I see him and even how I read his books. Because this man could have easily flaunted his fame, who could have kind of led the discussion to the fact that he's written over 150 books, who could have spent time eating with the leaders in the conference, took time to eat lunch with my mom, and left her with this impression that he was kind and he was nice. Like beloved, this is what happens when we live out of the reality of God as our father. When we believe that truth, when we love that truth, when we are secure in that truth, we then just get to enjoy the freedom 
of the gospel. And from that, the most natural thing we can do is be loving and be kind. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and for your kindness. And we pray, Lord, that we would be a people who live out of the reality that you know us. You are our Heavenly Father. And from that, we would be a people who are loving and kind. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.